Well, as uh, Josiah was mentioning earlier, in uh, just three weeks, uh, things are going to be radically different. Um, He mentioned, uh, just again to recap for those that have been following our series online, but uh, we don't put the whole service up online, we just put the messages up online, so if you haven't seen a whole service or you uh, haven't been part of our email uh, announcements and our newsletter, uh, Krista and I are going to be transitioning. We're going to uh, finish up ministry here on August the 28th and be moving to uh, New Design Church in Frederick, Maryland. Uh, First couple of weeks of September is our goal. Um, As a matter of fact, if you'd love to pray for us, we would appreciate that you pray that we find a place to live because we haven't been homeowners for a while. We've lived in a parsonage for the last uh, almost eight years now. There's no parsonage in Frederick at New Design Church. So we're looking at, do we rent? Do we buy? I think even this afternoon, once we get home from church, we'll be uh, visiting with our realtor and doing FaceTime tours of different uh, homes that have open houses. So we'd appreciate your prayers uh, for that entire process. But I want you to know that I think you're in good hands. For one, One of the things that I've experienced my entire ministry career of almost 25 years now is that God is always going before his people. He is not asking his people to go to a place where he is not. And any time that we walk with God, even if it's in dark places, we are still walking with God and we see that All through scripture, we see that in the life of Joseph. We see that in the life of Jesus. We see that in the life of of Paul and all of the heroes of the faith. And so um, when Josiah asks to pray, for you to take the next number of weeks and to pray, God, what's next for us? Take that seriously. Find out what the Lord wants to do and then bring that together at the forums that are coming in September. I also want you to know that I also see that God goes before just in the way that we actually plan our our services. Uh, The way that we plan our services is that uh, every summer or so I will have a calendar of preaching already planned out. And I will know what's going to happen. I know what series we're going to be looking at, what books of the Bible we're going to be looking at. And I knew that we would be doing Philippians far earlier than I knew that we would be leaving. I found that fascinating. And I'm convinced that God once again is proving his sovereignty because you may be feeling, wait a minute, If we don't have a pastor, how can our church and our church family thrive? How can they be successful as a church together on mission for Jesus if we don't have a pastor leading us? And I'm convinced that God has been showing us how that can happen. Because, as you remember, Paul was in prison. He had to leave Philippi. He couldn't stay and pastor this church. He couldn't stay and develop elders. He couldn't stay and develop deacons and deaconesses. He couldn't stay and develop the mission and care for people and pastor for people. He had to leave because he was asked to leave by the city officials. 
And you can read all that story in Acts chapter 16. And so Paul, he goes on his journeys and he ends up in house arrest in Rome, which sounds really great, except we came through a pandemic and we didn't like being under house arrest back then either. And this was because the law required him that he could never leave the house. And even in the middle of that, Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, here's how you can thrive. We learned in the first week that great churches and great Christians thrive if they nurture their love for the Lord and pursue holiness so that they're ready for when Christ returns. The following week, we learned that thriving Christians and thriving churches view difficult circumstances through a different lens. They don't see them as, woe is me, this is awful, but they instead view things in three ways. That difficult circumstances are new opportunities for sharing our faith. That our circumstances are opportunities to prove that we really are who we say we are, and more importantly, that Jesus is who he says he is because of the way that he's transforming us to face these difficult circumstances, unlike any other. And we learned that when we do that, we become an example that inspires others. It's an opportunity to shine our life to light to encourage other Christians to stand up in faith regardless of what they're facing. And last week, we learned that we have to have a particular attitude to do that. Last week, we learned that great Christians and great churches keep harmony in stressful situations by putting other people's interests ahead of their own and remembering that the world is watching them as they do so. However, that's one of those passages, and it's been one of those series so far where it's kind of been, well, that's great, that's, that's easy to say, but how do we do it? What are some actual practical things that we can begin to put into practice, right? They, be, they are hard for us to do. Just saying, hey, put other people's interests ahead of your own. Go ahead and do that. God bless you and have a great week. How do you wrestle with all of the tensions, especially when you are under stress yourselves? Um, I'm going to do something that, uh, well, it's dangerous. For the second week in a row, I'm going to use a sports analogy. If you're a sports person, you're probably thinking, yes. If you're not, you're probably thinking, Okay, when's he done? But bear with me. In baseball, all teams have a warm-up time before each game. They'll go out and they'll throw a baseball back and forth, especially if they're an outfielder. They'll take some uh, grounders. They'll uh, practice throwing to first just to get warm-up. But they'll also all take batting practice. Do you, know what, do you know what batting practice is? Raise your hand if you know what batting practice is. You kind of know what that is. It's where people get into a safe environment and there's a cage protecting all sorts of people around them so that if they're watching and coaches are watching them, they don't get hurt if the ball gets hit in a certain way and comes flying at them, it gets stopped by this cage. And one of the coaches or other players comes out not quite as far as the mound and gets behind a screen and tells the player, here's what I'm about to throw you. 
And they don't throw it as fast as they'd normally see it, but it's just for a way for the player to work on their swing. Let's say they had trouble hitting a curveball in the last game. They may ask the pitching coach, hey, will you throw some curveballs? I need to work on that. I struggled with it in my last game. So, if you know what's coming, and you know that the pitch is not going to be as hard as usual, you really get a chance to hit and hit well. And um, in batting practice, if you get to a game early enough on the major league level, you can go and watch batting practice, you'll see balls fly out of the yard all the time. They'll go over the fence and you'll think, wow, I didn't know that player could do that. That's amazing. Look at them hit. I can't wait for them to hit in the game. But as a fan, you know that what happens in batting practice doesn't translate to the actual game all the time, does it? Because all of a sudden, the pitcher's farther away. All of a sudden, the pitcher's throwing harder. All of a sudden, you don't know what the pitcher's going to throw. And you don't know what location he's going to put them. He's not trying to help you work on your swing, right? He's trying to get you out so that his team can get up to bat and have a chance to win the game. No, we know that... No one tracks what happens in batting practice. It's what happens in the game that matters. That's the statistics we track. And what happens when you are under stress is the real game. Anyone can put other people's interests ahead of themselves when things are going well in their own life. It's easy because life is going good for you. But when life is not, our instinctive reaction is to think, okay, now I need to pull back. I need a little self-care. I need a little something for me. I need to take a break. I need this in my life. So how do we put other people's interests ahead of our own when we're in a real life situation where we're also under stress, how do we do that? Well, I think we can look at what Paul does for the Philippians in the last half of chapter 2 that makes all of the difference. And as we look at it together, I want you to just be warned up front I'm not preaching this because I'm leaving and I want to just start preaching hard messages now. I'm preaching this because this is the next natural unit in the letter of Philippians. But having said that, this is hard. This is hard for me to say. It's going to be hard for you to hear. And if you're a leader in this church, if you're one of our elders, deacons, deaconesses, if you're a longtime member if you're a volunteer ministry leader or a volunteer at all, this is going to be difficult. So be warned. This is going to challenge us all, especially for those of us who God has called to lead. Because here's what Paul does. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me in them to Philippians chapter 2. This is how we help others thrive who are under stress. Philippians chapter 2, starting at the 19th verse. Paul does something weird. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. 
that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as, as soon as I see how things go with me. Paul takes his time out in the middle of Philippians about challenging them to put other people's interests ahead of their own and remember that the world is watching to say, oh, and, and by the way, I want to send someone who's like a son to me. I want to send him to you because he's a great gospel minister. Why is this important? Why would Paul let them know that? Why would Paul send Timothy? If we don't understand the context of this letter, we actually miss why this is so critical. It's interesting, as we already mentioned off the top, that Paul is under house arrest. Have you ever been in house arrest in first century Roman uh, civilization before? Anybody? Raise your hand. Anybody who's, well, if, don't raise your hand if you've been in prison. That's not, like, you know, it's not confession at that level here this morning. But have you ever been under house arrest in prison under first, uh, first century Roman rule? Not that old. <laughs> I don't think anyone's that old, right? That, that happened over 2,000 years ago. So we need to know what was it like to be under house arrest, in jail, in first century Roman civilization. Here's what it was like. There are no social programs for prisoners. Your taxes do not go towards making sure that they have any basic needs. The prisoner has to provide their own house. They don't go out and shop for groceries. They don't have someone come and deliver groceries. They don't have a service that comes and makes sure that they just all go to the commissary and start buying things. They don't have a way to do their own laundry. They are isolated. It's the best way to describe it would be solitary confinement, except even in solitary confinement, you have people delivering food at certain times. You're just, uh, you're taken away from the ability to see light in other people. You have nothing if other people, family and friends, don't provide for you. And Paul's in where? Under house arrest? Rome. What's Paul's nationality? Where was he born? Right. He's two citizens, but he's Jewish. He's trained as a Pharisee. He's, he's trained as a religious leader. How many friends do you think he has? How many family members have come to Rome to care for him from Israel? Not many, except Timothy. Timothy's one of the people that have come. He's come from Ephesus, where he was a church pastor where he had done ministry with Paul to help plant that church, to help lead that church in Paul's absence. He had been there, and when Paul had need, Timothy came, and Timothy helped. 
you know, what Timothy is doing for Paul is a lot like what you might do as your parents age. Some of you, your parents are older, still with us, but they need help. They need help to do basic things around the home, basic acts of hygiene. They've said that they don't want to be in a nursing home. They don't want to be in assisted living. They want to spend the rest of their life comfortably in their own place, and you're sacrificing to make sure that they have what they have. That's what Timothy's doing for Paul. So why is this significant? Paul sends Timothy to go be with the Philippian believers, to go help them instead of himself. And not just, not just Timothy, but a son, a son who Paul loved and who Paul needed. Paul doesn't even stop there. He actually continues in verse 24. He says, I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come to you, which we'll get to in a moment. But I think it is necessary, he continues, I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, who you sent to take care of my needs. That shows a good relationship between the Philippian believers and Paul. For he longs uh, for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the health help you yourselves could not give me. Paul called Timothy a son. What does he call Epaphroditus? A brother, a fellow soldier, a co-worker, a co-laborer in the gospel. Epaphroditus has actually come with a gift from the Philippian believers to help Paul have what he needs. It's a financial gift. It's probably not a gift of food because of the distance that you'd have to travel. But it would be a financial gift for a group of people who were being cut off from their financial relationships and financial opportunities simply because they were Christians. They were willing to sacrifice for what Paul needed. Do you think, um, do you think Paul could have used Epaphroditus' help? If he sends Timothy away, could he, could he not keep Epaphroditus, right? Sure, I'll, I'll send you this, but I'll keep this for me, and then you have someone to lead you, and I have someone to help me who can care for my physical needs, who can look after me, who can make sure that I have uh, food and clothing, and I can have water and, and all of the things that I need. But he sends both. And my question is, Why? And not only that, remember I said that we get back to what Paul said about how he would come and visit them too? If you uh, know your story of the Bible from the book of Acts, you know that Paul 
wanted to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to go where they had not heard about Jesus and tell them about Jesus. He wanted to go where there weren't Christians to help people find and follow Jesus, to help churches get planted, to make them healthy, to develop leadership, and then he'd move on to the next place. That's what missionaries do. But Paul says, I want to come back to you. I'm going to sacrifice that agenda to get to where there aren't any Christians. I'm going to sacrifice by giving away Timothy and Epaphroditus who I desperately need so that I can survive. Why? Because that's the connection of what it looks like to put other people's interests above your own. That's what it looks like. Paul is saying, I know I need these things, and I know you need the same things. And I am going to give up the things that will provide for my needs so that you have what you need. That is what it means to put other people's interests sacrificially and humbly above your own. Paul is making deep personal sacrifices to make sure that the stress level of this church and the things that they are facing are lowered, are calmer, are easier. And I believe that this is the calling of every Christian certainly the calling of every Christian leader. I think it's the calling of every Christian. You see, great leaders understand this. Great leaders understand what ministry is about, that ministry is not about making them comfortable. It's not about their own personal success. It's about the success of the church, and they will do whatever it takes to make the church successful. For Paul, ministry is about the Philippians thriving not himself and I think Paul was actually just following the example of Jesus because it was Jesus who said that whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and then he goes even stronger Jesus gets a little offensive especially in our day and age and says whoever wants to be uh, uh, great among you must be your slave Whew. that is the calling of every leader it's not just to sacrifice a little it's not just to sacrifice what's left it's not just to give what's in excess but it's to give your best, to give your all, and to sacrifice what you need so that other people can have what they need. As a matter of fact, I think it's to give other people what they need even if you need it to. You know, we actually see this a little bit in society. We see this in families. We see this when parents are struggling to make ends meet. Maybe there's a little too much month at the end of the money. 
and they'll make sure that the kids have something on their plate before they do. And they'll sell things, they say things like, oh, I'm not hungry today. They'll make sure that everyone uh, gets some. I actually read a cute little story on Facebook today. I'm not even sure if it was true, but it made me smile. Um, it was a math question where um, a person said, your mom uh, is serving up, uh, uh, what was it? It was serving up apple pie for dessert. And there's her, and then there's five of you kids. Uh, five, you and your four brothers and sisters and your mom. How many pieces of pie does she cut the pie into? And everybody answered six, except this one little boy who said five. Because my mom will make sure we get extra. Welcome to what it takes to put others' interests selflessly, humbly above your own. It's to give others what they need even if you need it too. Now as leaders, and I think as Christians, it is our responsibility to help others thrive, to love our neighbor as ourself. The challenge of when we're under stress is that we often focus on our own situation and want to make that better. We tend to focus on our own thriving. What do we need to do to succeed? And God calls us to a higher standard than that. And Paul sets an example of what it can look like and what can happen. I think that the challenge of the church today is to help other Christians, other churches succeed even if our church has to give up what we need. It's actually one of the reasons I find leaving this church very difficult. Because I can think in the past of when we've done that. And can I just brag on you for a little bit? Back when Crosstown Alliance Church was just getting planted here, in Rochester, our church did some amazing things that I'm just enormously proud of you and what you did. The first was that they had some work days to get their campus ready. You remember that they had originally planned to launch on Easter 2020. Well, the whole world changed that year, and so they didn't open. But they had extra time to get ready and when they started to think about this is the time we're going to start sending invitations and we're going to go we're going to make this campus ready we learned about it and we said who would like to go and serve and we saw elderly saints we saw young teenagers and preteens all showing up to help and serve and there were a ton of people that came from, from Crosstown itself, from all of the campuses in the sort of the southern tier and uh, close to um, Olean and, and other places like that, a couple hours away. They drove to be here on that Saturday and work and serve. You saw that. A number of people were there. You helped. I have the pictures. But there's something else you didn't know. When they were first starting out, one of the things they really wanted to focus on was making sure that they left a good impression musically. And we sent musicians, some of our best, to go and serve with them on Sundays, on Sundays when we could use them. 
As a matter of fact, there was an Easter Sunday when we, Easter, right? I think it was Easter. I don't remember. Uh, it, was a, it was a particularly large Sunday where we had a big outreach type planned. We sent some of our best musicians to them so that they would have what they need. I'm proud of you for that. I'm proud of this church for that. I'm proud of our worship team for saying we need as many people as possible to help us have a time when we enter into the presence of God and we worship him like there's no one else in the room. We want those moments. We want those experiences each and every Sunday. But we knew they needed it too and we were willing to sacrifice. I've also been on the other side of that. Where we're when we were in need, no one would help. As a matter of fact, in my church in Albany, I um, learned that a uh, church that was a little bit bigger than us was looking at planting in downtown Albany. They were close to us, and I said, hey, you guys are planting in downtown Albany. We've got some resources that, sure, we could use on our building, and we could renovate it, and we could make it look good, but there's no real solid evangelical presence uh, churches in downtown Albany. Let's be a part of that. And so we started conversations, and the whole time, all this church did was complain that larger churches wouldn't help them. They didn't want our help. We were too small. And there have been times for us as a church where I have asked for help from other churches and they've said, no, we're too busy. We need those resources. Friends, that is not what Paul does here. And that's not what you do. And I think that that is such a North American mindset to say that we have to build our church and we have to build our brand. Because that's not the way the church functions around the world. When the church around the world is hurting, they don't care about their brand. They go and help. And they give up what they need if others need it. Even if they need it too, they give it up because they put others' interests ahead of their own. And do you know where we've seen that most recently? as Christians have fled Ukraine and ended up in countries like Romania. I have friends there who have said, we have dropped everything to help them. They will show up at train stations and say, how many in your family come and stay at my house? And it doesn't matter whether they're Christians or not. They will find Russian hymnals because some people in Ukraine, close enough to the Russian border, those Christians, they already spoke Russian. They didn't actually speak a lot of Ukrainian. And so they would find Russian hymnals and help them hold services in their church despite all of the tension, all of the uh, social anxiety that came with that. Oh, can we be associated with speaking Russian? What will other people think? They said, nope, this is your language. We're going to help you worship. Even if it costs us. You may be thinking, how can we ever thrive without a pastor? And my answer is, put other people's interests ahead of your own. And do it 
by giving away what you need to others who need it, even if you need it yourself. So how do we do that? How do we help others thrive in stressful situations even when it will cost us greatly, even if it will cost us the things we need? One uh, year, uh, just when we had moved to the United States, uh, my wife and I had enough points on airline points. We decided to fly and visit our, our uh, former boss, my mentor, Kent Edwards, in California. Um, if, if he was still in Boston, we may not have gone there in October, but we did because he was now in California, and that sounded pretty good. And so we took our one-year-old son with us on a plane, and we got tickets to Disneyland. You ever been to Disneyland in California? Anybody? It's amazing. Um, we absolutely loved it. I think we got two or three day passes because if you're going to go, you, you just don't pretend that you can afford it. Just go and pay the price and make sure you experience everything. But the follow-up to the question is, have you ever been to Disneyland is, have you ever been to Disneyland with a one-year-old? Whew. Have you ever been anywhere with a one-year-old? Right? You know what to expect when you're going with a one-year-old. You already know that there's going to be things you can't do and you're going to be limited in your time and you've got to have extra supplies and resources. You know all of that. And we just said, okay, we're going to go and Josh is going to have a great time. He was I think, one. I'm pretty sure that was the trip where he either... Uh, he got to meet uh, Winnie the Pooh and Mickey Mouse, the big life-sized people in the costumes. Uh, and I think he punched one of them. Uh, I don't think he meant to, uh, but he was just so excited he wanted to reach out. And he got a little excited on the reach out and uh, I think whacked one of them in the face. Um, we apologized and got our quick photo and moved on. But so anyways, Disneyland memories, right? You know that taking a toddler somewhere, a one-year-old, you're going to be limited in what you can do. And we were so shocked before we left on the second or third day, my mentor, who let us stay at his house to save even more money, said, oh, so what are you guys doing today? Oh, we're going back to Disneyland. Oh, fantastic. That sounds like a lot of fun. And he turned to his eldest son, Nathan, who was just a senior in high school or a freshman in college, and said, hey, Nathan, go grab your Disneyland pass and go with them and take care of Josh so they can go on some rides and spend the whole day with a one-year-old that isn't yours. Now, I don't know about your son. I don't know about your daughter. If you were to tell them, hey, go spend a day with someone else's one-year-old, you might think, uh, mom, dad, I had plans, right? That may be their thought. But you know what Nathan did? He's like, you got it, let's go. Went and got his pass, and around we went. And Krista and I were able to go on some of the rides that Josh would never have been able to go on because he was too young. And Josh was in great hands. He had a time of his life hanging out with his new best friend, Nathan. That's what it looks like to do this. What did Kent do? What I think Kent did was that when he learned of our plans, he said, you know what? What would make that the absolute best for them? What do they need he thought of it deliberately, and he thought of it through his own lens of experience. What is it like to go to Disneyland with a one-year-old, right? Here are the challenges. I'm going to help solve them. I think that's what we need to do. 
I think we need to stop thinking about our own challenges and say, of course, life is challenging, but I have a real opportunity to live out what it means to be Christ, to reduce other people's stress, to help them thrive. And you need to read the room to find those people because some people won't tell you that they're under stress, but you can tell. And then just think, boy, if I was in that situation, what would I need to thrive? And then just provide it. Then just provide it. What would I need if I was in their situation? And offer it. That's what Kent did, I believe, and that's what you and I can do as Christians. And imagine what it would look like if it wasn't just the leaders of our church who did that during this upcoming transition time. Imagine the whole church started to put other people's interests ahead of their own. Do you see leaders do this today typically? Outside of the church, do you see people calling and modeling that kind of sacrifice? Talk about countercultural, right? Talk about something that says, wow, you have something that I don't. You have something that is so rare in the world. Imagine if not just our church began to put other people's interests ahead of their own, but every Christian did. So how do we be the type of thriving Christian that Paul was? Someone who was in house arrest, who could give away his valuable assets and sacrifice them, the things that he needed to live so that the Philippians would thrive. How do we do that? How can we be the type of great Christian that says, you are like Jesus, and Jesus would say, you are like me because just like I didn't come to be served, but to serve, you are following in my footsteps. How can we be the thriving church in spite of an upcoming pastoral transition that is so desperately needed in Christendom today? Give others what they need, even if you need it too. Let me pray for you. Father, this is hard. This is a hard passage to hear. This is a hard passage to digest. Because none of us, if we're honest, none of us act with truly pure motives in every situation. We struggle with putting the needs of others ahead of our own, with putting other people's interests, being sacrificial and humbly putting other people's interests ahead of our own. And so we thank you for how Paul showed us how to do it. That we give and we give even if it's what we need. We give what other people need first Lord would you raise us up to be the kind of people who sacrifice time energy 
prayer, finances, strength. In order to care for the interests of others. And Lord, in faith, we ask that you would provide everything that we need so that we can be like Paul. To be content that whatever situation we're in, that we are serving you as we serve others. It's hard to do. But would you help us, Lord? Would you empower us to give what others need, even if we need it for ourselves? Would you show us how to do that? And would you help us to do that for your glory and for your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.